This episode is sponsored by More Than A Number, the brand new podcast from ICAEW. Search More Than A Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. So it finally happened this week an election was officially called. We look at what the major parties need to do in order to win. Plus, Trump's gone back into Syria, and we look at how the pressures back home are shaping up his foreign policy. And finally... Does that sound give you the shivers? After months of wrangling, a general election has finally been called. In this week's issue, Jane Forsyth writes that with Brexit, Scottish independence and even the British two-party system all at stake, this election is the most important since 1945. So, what do the two major parties need to do in order to win? Katie Balls talks to Stephen Bush, the New Statesman's political editor, and Will Tanner, director of the centre-right think tank Onward. So we have the Tories leading in the polls, uh, plan to win over traditional Labour heartlands and an opposition led by Jeremy Corbyn that's looking a little bit shaky. Stephen, I could be talking about 2017 here if we we look at the factors, but instead we're heading to a December election 2019. Do you think history is going to repeat itself? Um, Well... With the with the massive sort of caveat that voters are more volatile than they've ever been because they're much more willing to shop around. So they're much more willing, A, to vote for the main other party, but also to vote for smaller parties, all of which makes particularly our electoral system more unpredictable. But I don't think it will for a couple of reasons. The first being that the major cause of volatility last time is that people didn't actually know Theresa May or Jeremy Corbyn that well, which obviously seems wild to people who, you know, listen to the Spectator podcast. But actually, the average person had this idea that, like, Theresa May was pretty competent, pretty solid, and quite like them, which is an important asset that is is worth, we should talk about later on. But And then they had this idea that the Labour Party was led by someone who was different from previous Labour leaders, but they didn't really know how. And... Corbyn was able to define himself differently in a positive way. I think there's probably a very strong case to be made that his negative approval ratings now are more sticky. They're harder to move. Of course, the important variable in his favour, yeah, so history could repeat but in a very different way, which is that it's really easy to forget because Jeremy Corbyn breaks new records for unpopularity every week that Boris Johnson is really unpopular. He is more unpopular at the start of this campaign than Theresa May was at the end of the 2017 one. So we could have a situation where the 2017 election was the story of Corbyn doing well because he rose to meet Theresa May's popularity ratings. It's possible this could be the one where Boris Johnson's ratings fall to meet his. But I think that because both candidates are incredibly well known in a way that they were not last time, I think it's very unlikely that that dynamic will recur exactly. Well, you worked with Theresa May and as I touched on in the introduction there, it does feel as though where the Tories appear to be pitching, I mean, I'm crystal clear, but it's a lot of the places Theresa May had hoped to pick up seats. So you hear about these areas that vote heavily to leave, which tend to vote Labour. Um, you have a report with Onward, which you, which you now um, are in charge of, which, which looks at that. 
But if it didn't work last time, what's changed, which means it should work two years on? Well, look, I, I agree that it's broadly the same strategy. And Nick Timothy writes in your magazine this week about the similarity to strategies with 2017. But I think I think quite a lot has changed in the last two years. So first and foremost, Brexit has dragged on. The voters have become much more weary of that process. And I think much more demanding of a shift onto lots of domestic social and economic priorities that have been perhaps neglected in the last couple of years. I also think the Labour position has retreated away from Brexit considerably in the last few years, which makes lots of those leave voting towns in the north of England that perhaps nearly swung to the Conservative Party or moved towards the Conservative Party last time, but not not quite over the line, a bit more reachable for Boris Johnson. I also think that actually the Conservative Party has moved a bit in the last in the last few years. I mean, Boris Johnson, since he became Prime Minister, has adopted quite an aggressive political strategy that's clearly ruthlessly targeted at the issues which matter to voters outside London particularly, and especially in these type of working class towns. So he, his first speech as Prime Minister, apart from the one on the Downing Street steps, was up in Manchester talking about devolving control and power to left behind regions. He's done a lot to talk about boosting the NHS education. He spent huge amounts of money at odds with lots of the kind of caricature of the kind of Tory austerity of 2010 to 2015. So he's moved the party into a pitch that could unlock some of those some of those voters. But what our research shows this week, I think, is that he needs to do more and it needs to be a more complete political philosophy because there is still quite a lot of distrust of the Conservative brand. Stephen, in this week's Spectator magazine, I write about what are known by some in the Labour Party as the Dennis Skinner voters. So traditionally, you're a sceptic, very tribal voters that fill lots of these seats, which we're talking about the fact that Tories think that demographically could be theirs with the right factors. What do you think, I suppose, the Labour Party has in its favour when it comes to retaining these voters? So voters who are your sceptic, but are tribally Labour. So I think it has two things in its favour. The first is the Labour brand and we saw and actually from the thing that's important to remember is although there were many things in that campaign which were incredibly badly prosecuted it was actually on day one both in Downing Street's focus groups Labour's focus groups and um various independent focus groups um, including so Britain Thinks uh, once and I myself sat in the room for on day one they were going I want to vote Theresa May but I'm not sure about voting Tory and the Labour brand and the loyalty to it, the affection that people have for Labour is much stronger, which is why, you know, you can see that in the various splits, right? Actually, people are much more able to go, I quite like David Cameron's Conservatives. This isn't for me. I'm going to step down. You don't have that kind of, you know, imagine someone would, would always look a bit naff if they stood up at Conservative Party conference and went, this party, this party, I, I, I'll i be taken out of it in a box. Everyone was like, all right, mate, calm down. The <laughs> you just haven't gone as- to the late night party. Yeah. <laughs> the, other, the other aspect is that, Theresa May didn't come across as being very posh. She came across as being a normal person who most people in their community knew someone about as posh as Theresa May. Now, yes, her qualities as a kind of horse, as it were, yeah, in, in this metaphor's running away from me. Um, 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 <laughs> yeah, her, apologies her, to Theresa May. <laughs> yeah, her, her, her abilities as a candidate were not matched by her sort of her qualities as a as a potential product. Boris Johnson is the reverse, a very able candidate, but the product he is selling is incredibly Tory. And those are Labour's big assets among those groups. Just on that, I was um, 
a discussion recently on various polling, particularly looking at low-income voters in areas like these. And one of the things that came up that people repeatedly say about Boris Johnson is they think he's funny. Now, someone there suggests, well, funny doesn't win your election. But I wonder, with Boris Johnson, to me it seemed as though, yes, he was in the Bullington Club and he is by all accounts, you know, someone who could be described as posh. But it doesn't seem to damage him in the same way it did David Cameron. He seems more relaxed in it. Do you think the fact that people do find him funny at times or having a sense of humour could help with that? Or are we overstating the effect of that? I think, I kind of think that effect is overstated. I mean, I think its vulnerability is, do people want the Prime Minister to be funny? However, I think Labour are poorly placed to sort of activate that vulnerability because people will choose funny over someone who they believe cannot be Prime Minister. I I, I think the important kind of sort of thing we're kind of conflating here, right, is there's Labour leave voters and areas where Labour leave voters happen to live. Theresa May actually did a very good job of winning Labour Leave voters, but she did a very poor job of winning Labour Leave areas because Jeremy Corbyn was able to gobble up the whole kind of liberal left vote, the Greens to Liberal Democrats. Now, I think it is the most likely, and bear in mind all outcomes are unlikely, but the most likely outcome of this election, I think, is that Boris Johnson will win loads of seats Theresa May failed to win with a significantly smaller number of votes, both in the country as a whole and in those places. Because for a variety of reasons, some are things he is not doing that aggravated social liberals and made them feel they had to vote Labour to stop Theresa May, and also because of things Jeremy Corbyn has done, which have aggravated some social liberals and caused them to feel they cannot hold their nose and vote for the Labour Party. But he doesn't need to do better than Theresa May in in Bishop Auckland if the Lib Dem vote goes up by 5,000 at Helen Goodman's expense. And I think that is the kind of massively under-discussed variable in this election. Now, Will, to, to win those seats, you say in your report that key to this is Workington Man. Who is Workington Man? Yes, well, so you've heard of Mondeo Man, you've heard of Essex Man, Worcester Woman. These are the voter archetypes of, of past elections. And we've done this piece of analysis which looks at the voter attitudes and underlying demographics of voters around the country to identify the key swing voter. And we call that Workington Man because Workington is the, the constituency where this type of voter is most likely to live. They're typically white. They're more likely to be over the age of 45, uh, unlikely have got to have gone to university. They've lived in their home for probably 10 years. And they voted leave at the last general election. And if you think of these voters, they are typically kind of, yeah, these older white voters, they probably voted Labour for generations, and they probably lived in towns, typically towns, and the kind of towns element of this is very important, that probably have a quite strong rugby league tradition, we call these rugby league towns, but but also have, have always returned a Labour candidate. And suddenly, partly because of Brexit, partly because of this underlying attitudinal shift within the population, they are starting to be willing to vote for other parties. Now, the Brexit party does quite well amongst this group. And I think it's it's wrong to say the Conservative Party party has this, this group in, their, in the bag. But they are very alienated from Labour. And some of them are willing to, to put their votes in Boris Johnson's box. And crucially, as Stephen says, he doesn't actually need any of those extra voters in Workington, there are 4,000 voters who, who voted for the majority for Sue Heyman, the, the, the resident MP. All he needs is for 4,000 voters to move away from Sue Heyman and to hold the Conservative vote steady. In those, As it stands, I think he's likely gaining voters in places like Workington. Now, let's talk about tax 
tactical voting because with four parties doing fairly well in the polls, it does seem as though there has been much talk about electoral packs. There's also been lots of dampening down of such talk with people suggesting they're not going to do it. But Stephen, what are you picking up? Do you think we could see the Liberal Democrats and Labour perhaps not entering an official electoral pet, but I suppose laying off each other in certain seats where they view it as more to their advantage to have Labour focus on beating the Tories and others to have the Liberal Democrats beating the Tories? Well, so yes and no. No in the the Liberal Democrats know full well that one, so essentially the way they gain seats is effectively to be in a Conservative held seat to take and for two-thirds of their vote to have come from the Labour Party and to get the crucial final third from the Tories, and that allows them to leapfrog the, the Conservatives and win. Now, they know that of those sort of three sort of components, a third of those people are Labour voters who are deeply angry with Jeremy Corbyn about Brexit, about anti-Semitism, about a variety of other issues. And so those people cannot, you know, can't feel that, they're, that they are voting Lib Dem and they're getting the Labour Party. However, the other third of the Labour vote they need is voting tactically to get the Tories out. So they can't feel too much that they're voting to repudiate the Tory party. And the remaining third from the Tories also doesn't like the Labour Party and doesn't. So so for them, any kind of talk about PACs is quite painful because there is no correct answer. In practice, however, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats aren't fighting in the same parts of the country, with the exception of a handful of constituencies where journalists live and therefore get an outsized... Yeah, there, there are lots of journalists who commute in from Cambridge. There are lots of journalists who live in Bermondsey and Old Southwark. There are lots of journalists who live in, in Hornsey and Wood Green. Indeed, I used to live in Hornsey and Wood Green. It's a lovely place. But, right, but they know. are... Well, now I'm in, in Stoke Newington, where my vote does not count for as much. But, you know, I don't think that you will see a pact so much. You just... Well, there is no Labour Party in, you know, Richmond Park, and there is no Liberal Democrat Party in Bishop Auckland. So they will have a pact of expediency, and then it doesn't really make any sense for them to spend money in the areas the other is fighting. Now, just to bring this conversation to a close, one question for each of you. First of all, you've always been very supportive of Theresa May. In fact, you, you spent a decent portion of your career working with her. But what do you think Boris Johnson needs to do that she didn't in order to get a majority in this election? I think he needs to put forward a much bolder and a more unabashed strategy uh, and set of policies about winning over people like Workington Man. So and focusing on the kind of deep tears in our social fabric and repairing bits of our community that have been neglected by politicians for far too long. And Stephen, what do you think Jeremy Corbyn needs to do that he didn't in 2017 to perhaps not even get to majority, but to a number of seats that means he can have form some type of Labour government with help? I think the problem is is it's what he has to do this time that he did last time, which is to take Brexit off the table as an electoral issue. The difficulty is I can't work out what lever you can pull if you are the Labour Party, other than having voted through the deal in March to some kind of plausible deniability. I don't know how they can do that. And I think if they can't do that, because one of the reasons it didn't work for Theresa May is you had... An election in which, despite what many Remain voters now believe, we can look at what they were telling us at the time, and they thought Brexit was a settled issue, and they did they did not think of Labour as a pro-European party. However, now you have a large chunk of Remainers who, who, who would like to prevent Brexit from happening, and you have a large chunk of Brexiteers who are worried Brexit will be prevented. And unless you can find some way of making that dividing line go away, it's very hard for the Labour Party to do as well, let alone better than it did in 2017. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Will. 
Hello, I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. I'm the host of our weekly books podcast, where we have guests ranging from the authors of fiction to historians and critics and philosophers talking about everything and anything to do with the world of books. We've had in recent months, from the thriller writer Lee Child to the historian Peter Frankopan, we've had Deborah Lipstadt on anti-Semitism, Judith Carr on the Mog books, and Wendy Cope on her wonderful poetry. We hope there's something there for everyone, and if you think there might be, all you need to do is search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store or whichever your podcast provider is, and sign up to get a weekly dose of Spectator Books conversation. Next, Trump's made a big deal of taking America out of Syria, but is he actually telling the truth? As it happens, John Bradley writes this week about how American troops have gone back into the country to protect valuable oil fields from occupation by ISIS. Bradley argues that Trump's bowed to domestic pressures, both from his voters and from the hawkish military establishment. So, is he right? I'm joined by Sir Christopher Mayer, former British ambassador to Washington, and Sarah Elliott, chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Christopher, in this week's issue, John R. Bradley writes that on Twitter, Trump is ending the endless wars, but in the real world, he's actually perpetuating them. Did you find yourself agreeing with that position? Yeah, pretty well. I thought John Bradley's article was very, very illuminating. It reminded us of one of the roots of... Uh, of Trump's domestic support, which in turn reminds us that he must have at the moment only two things at the top of his mind. And they aren't the Middle East intrinsically. They are, how do I get re-elected in, in 2020 and preserve my base as a foundation for that? And secondly, I better not piss off anybody, in uh, any Republican in the Senate, whom I may need if impeachment articles are approved by the House of Representatives and go to the Senate for trial. Sarah, can you explain why the Middle East matters so much for Trump's domestic supporters? Well, if you look at who's actually serving in the Middle East, first of all, they mostly come from red states. I mean, it is his supporters whose families are on the ground out in the Middle East. And also, he's, he's all about taking down his list of campaign promises. And he has been critical of the Iraq war from the beginning. Uh, he's tired of spending money in a sand pit, as he would say. $8 trillion has been, in some people's mind, wasted over there. A lot of bloodshed from American citizens. And, and for what? I mean, even in Trump's own words, we, we didn't even get any oil out of it uh, at the end of the day. So I think he is going through and thinking... I'm going through my checklist. I'm a businessman. I want people to re-elect me, and I want to fulfill my campaign promises. And one of the groups that John Bradley talks about are the white evangelical Christians, a big base for Trump. What, what will they be wanting to see in, within his foreign policy? Well, I think they're very happy overall with his foreign policy, particularly as it relates to Israel, as uh, Mr. Bradley points out. But they're also, you know, how much longer are we going to have to send our men and women to the Middle East uh, in a part of the world that has been fighting each other since the beginning of time? And it's one of those things where you you win, you defeat ISIS, but you and you leave. But what's there to preserve that victory if we're not there? Oh, exactly. Following on exactly from what Sarah has just said, if you say to people, actually, Trump's instincts are not that different in certain ways in the Middle East from Obama's policy, and that there are strong parallels in the Middle East between what Obama did or didn't do 
and uh, Donald Trump's instincts. And when Obama did that, extra, I think it was an interview, not an article, an interview, it must have been, in the Atlantic magazine in which he effectively said, you know, don't do anything stupid, don't get sucked into stupid wars, don't find yourself fighting somebody else's civil war. This is precisely the instinct, as far as I can see, that Trump has had for years and years and years. So your former editor, which is the more important position than Prime Minister Boris Johnson, <laughs> said, overheard at a private event, I think about a year ago, that there was method in Trump's madness. Not something he particularly wants to be publicly broadcast. But there is method there. And the method is, as Sarah said, you cannot stay in the Middle East forever and ever and ever and never have a finite political goal which enables you to stop spending the blood and treasure. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is, is the point he's making. But, of course, it's, it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. And I suppose particularly with an election next year, I mean, what, sorry, what do you think we're going to see sort of in terms of Trump's foreign policy over the next year? Well, I think he's going to downplay um, the fact that we're not removing our troops from Syria, that we are actually uh, keeping them to guard the oil reserves there. That, you know, and even in that safe zone that they were forming, that Kurdish zone, there were only several hundred troops there. It was a very small investment, actually, you know, comparing to our Middle East presence. And I actually think now with Baghdadi gone, he will find reasons to keep an American presence there in order that a resurgence doesn't happen again, especially with the ISIS prisoners, some of which are on the run, and there's more of a Russian presence as well. But I think he will focus on Israel and his support for Israel, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, I think he will talk about how he's been tough on the NATO allies to actually pay their 2% of GDP and that the Americans can no longer carry the or pay for all of our international treaties. And also, he should be proud of, I think, is removing $200 million from the UN Human Rights Council, which I think is a bit of a joke. And so do most Americans when you have Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, and China. <laughs> on the commission. So I think that he's definitely a domestic guy. He prefers the domestic agenda. And the US economy is the strongest it's ever been. And if he keeps focusing on that and focusing on jobs, and particularly with minorities and Hispanics, which is the lowest on record, I think he's going to chip away from the Democratic coalition. And obviously, he has to stay loyal to his working class Christian base, which I think he has. And he also has Mike Pence, who definitely heralds from that base as well, to help him. I think he can get reelected. Again, it's a narrow victory for him, just like the last time. I think you should watch Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those are the three big states. But at the end of the day, he's accomplished a great deal of his agenda. And he's going to make the case that he needs four more years to finish the job. And Christopher, what do you think we'll be seeing in terms of Trump's foreign policy over the next year? Well, I wouldn't disagree with anything that, that Sarah has just said. I think he got himself into a tangle in Syria, but we're not dealing, as she said, with thousands and thousands of troops. We're dealing with very, very small numbers of troops. And there's a story in the New York Times today which says, in effect, that 1,000 troops are being withdrawn and 900 are going back in. So difference in numbers is is minute in the grand scale of things. And this is, this is not a huge mass military uh, exercise. It is a fairly 
a fairly constra- a very constrained, targeted operation, set of operations by largely special forces. And that is the kind of context we, we have to look at this. I mean, I was in Washington with Bill, with the, for the failed impeachment of Bill Clinton. And there I learned a lesson that you, you do impeachment at your peril because it'll boomerang and smash you. And that effectively is what happened to the, the successive leaders of the Republican Congress um, who went after Bill Clinton and it all failed not least because Newt Gingrich and his successor, Bob Livingston, were actually having affairs with women at precisely the time that Bill Clinton was having an affair with, with Monica Lewinsky, and that destroyed everything. And that's why I think Nancy Pelosi has been incredibly cautious about going ahead with impeachment. But even in the last few days, this thing has gathered momentum because of Ukraine. I think one of the key things in all this for Trump has been my last line of defense in an impeachment trial is that a majority of Republicans in in the Senate will stand by me. And the announcement of the withdrawal shook that majority, and particularly Lindsey Graham. And Lindsey Graham was, I think, a key figure, more, I don't know, you you might not agree with that, I think Lindsey Graham more important than Mitch McConnell in in all of this. And, And Lindsey Graham now seems to be back on the side. Yeah. Well, I, I think it was Lindsey Graham that actually, you know, talked sense to him in this, you know, we need to protect these oil reserves to keep it away from ISIS and Iran. We can't have, you know, these being exposed and funding terror because that will, you know, just continue to perpetuate the problem. I, one senator that is overlooked in the press that has a lot of influence on the president is Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. Yeah. And he is a big isolationist, some would say, or just withdrawing from the Middle East in general. And he has the president's ear and support. So it it'll be very interesting how the Senate plays out. But obviously, the president needs all the support he can get in the Senate to prevent an impeachment. Uh, and I actually think the soldiers will all step in line because it's too big of a risk. And, and would you agree that if you look on the other side of the line, look, the Democratic candidates, there is not a single one, if you're a Democrat, who actually inspires you with a lot of confidence that Correct. they can beat Trump. For all his faults and, and eccentricities and extravagances and all that, because you've either got a bunch of what looked to me like almost European social Democrats of various age, some are almost children, some are ancient <laughs> characters, and then you've got Joe Biden, who... who fundamentally is past it. Mm. I mean, he's not much older than... He's 76. He's a little bit older than Trump, isn't he? Yeah, so Trump is 72. So you've got two septuagenarians possibly going to fight this out in, in 2000. And then for me, the stronger of the two septuagenarians at the moment is Donald Trump. Although both of them, maybe some say, some of my friends in America say, that both are in early stages of dementia. I mean, that's possible, isn't it? Sorry, I just find I wanted to ask you, because John Bradley makes the point at the end of his piece that Trump's the first US president in two decades not to have started a new war. I mean, do you think people will look back on him as a dove or a hawk? Hmm. That's a very good question, because he is taking on the big guys, like uh, North Korea, China. We well, started a trade um, war. That's yeah. true. That count? Maybe, it- <laughs> maybe he's a hawk in another way. Uh, he's a hawk in business, and that's what he—that's what he's more comfortable in dealing with—is money. And I, I think he's definitely the rights bully. So the cultural right, 
and the business community. This is their guy. This is their fighter. So to call him a dove doesn't seem right, but... I think militarily, he's definitely trying to rein in the industrial military complex, of which we spend a trillion dollars a year on national defence. Thank you, Christopher and Sarah. This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number, the brand new podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. And finally, you might want to put your headphones on for this bit. Relax. Be calm. And fall asleep. To some very simple. Does that sound make your scalp tingle? If so, that feeling is called ASMR, or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. And there's a growing online audience for so-called ASM artists who produce these videos filled with triggers to give you, well, what can only probably be described as a bit of a high. There are various types of triggers, and some people even enjoy listening to food being eaten, like this. Mary Wakefield looks at this phenomenon in her column this week and tries to understand it. She joins me now, together with Dr Julia Puero from the University of Essex. Mary, I think we should probably start by asking you to explain for the uninitiated what ASMR actually is. Well, as far as I understand it, and our, our guest would be better at describing it, it's a feeling a proportion of the population get when certain repetitive sounds are made. And I think there's lots of different triggers for this feeling, but the feeling as reported is the same amongst all the people who experience it. So I first came across it when a friend of mine over, gosh, about a decade ago told me that um, he got this strange, very pleasurable sensation in his brain from listening to the tiny sounds of someone cleaning. And I I thought, you complete pervert. What (laughs) are you talking about? But then as he, you know, explained it, um, and I looked it up, I realised that actually he wasn't just a total anomaly there were other people who felt the same way too. So um, I had to stop calling him a pervert and start getting interested. <laughs> Julia, you've researched this subject quite a bit. I mean, what, what do you understand by ASMR? Yeah, so I mean, a really similar thing, except to say that, uh, you know, it's quite a complex emotional state. And the feeling itself is described as sort of brain tingles. So it's often something that starts at the crown of the head can spread throughout the rest of the body and it's it's a very relaxing but also quite euphoric feeling so some people liken it also to the feeling of music induced chills so this is also another complex emotional state that some people experience that in, is like a, a shivers down the spine sort of thing sometimes you know if, if something unexpected happens like someone i don't know your team wins a football match or I can't think of anything nice and unexpected, actually. But, it, you know, you get a kind of free song. Is it? If, does it feel a little like that? Like when uh, the kind of awe and surprise and happiness you yeah. can feel? You know, like when your hairs on your arm stand up with something. Is it like that? So it's, it's similar in the sense that it's a complex emotion. So the two are kind of related, but they're actually quite distinct feelings. So even though a lot of people say, oh, it's kind of like frisson, it's, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's, it's quite a tool to help people to to kind of 
feel kind of what it might feel like even if they don't experience ASMR. But it's nicer than goosebumps, right? So you don't actually get the goosebumps with it. So you don't get the pilo erection, which is the hair standing on end with it. But you do get a kind of intense relaxation, almost trance-like state. So whereas kind of goosebumps, when you listen to an inspiring speech, is quite an activating experience, ASMR is distinctly relaxing, which is why lots of people use it for, for sleep and to relieve anxiety and things like that. Mary, your calling this week gives some examples of the different people involved in this. And can you take us through some of the things that you've discovered researching your column? Well, Julia, will, this will be familiar territory for Julia, but for me it was mind-boggling. I just had no idea that there were people prepared to pay to listen to these things. Like, there's, I mean, Julia will know, but there's, there's a lot of ASMR artists, ASM artists, I think as they call themselves, who whisper into the microphone... And it, I mean, I'm kind of tempted to give it a go, but um, <laughs> it's sort of very sibilant, a little like this. And, and to me, it sounds like your psycho ex has called you to freak you out <laughs> in the middle of the night. But to, to a certain proportion of the population, and really quite a large one, the whispers will, you know, give them these tingles. But there's also tapping on the microphone like that. People pay for that. There's the sound of eating, there's the sound of pages turning, and th- these things are getting 10, 20 million views. I mean, the eating one seemed pretty disgusting. Julia, I mean, is that a sort of specific genre of ASMR, people listening to people eating kind of honeycomb and prawns dipped in cheese? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, eating is a bit more of a niche trigger. So um, the most common kind of popular triggers are things like whispering, soft speaking, close personal attention and tapping. And also light touch as well is considered a trigger. And what's interesting about it is it's not as if somebody who experiences ASMR, every time somebody taps on an object, they will experience this fuzzy kind of brain tingling feeling. It's not as simple as that. The conditions need to be a bit more complex and they often involve a layering of the triggers, which is why you get kind of role play videos, which involve combinations of these different triggers. So you you might get somebody whispering and also feeling an object which might make some sounds and they might be paying close personal attention to you. So, you know, it's not just as simple as these triggers have a one-to-one mapping with this feeling of ASMR. It's it's a little bit more different than that. I suppose, yeah, exactly. It makes sense that there should be lots of ways in which you can get into this state. It's been suggested to me or I th- that the original kind of mechanism for this was, I mean, the reason it evolved is some sort of grooming, perhaps, or some sort of bonding that primates might do. I mean, it makes me feel slightly uncomfortable, you know, if I was watching some, you know, girl in Colorado eat a prawn, that I might be pair bonding <laughs> with her, you know, <laughs> along with 60,000 other people inadvertently. You know, it's just like sort of distortion of the, the kind of bonding mechanism. Well, also, Mary, some of the people you mentioned in your piece are quite young. I mean, there's a 13 year old who's making these videos. I mean, is there something a bit peculiar about the fact people are getting kind of pleasurable the feelings child, from the child 13 year old entrepreneurs are a little uncomfortable, maybe, but. I guess you can't stop them, Julia, can you? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things I say say to that. The first is that ASMR is different from ASMR videos. So lots of people experience this feeling, like you said, your friend when listening to sort of cleaning sounds in everyday life. It's not something that you have to tap into with YouTube and watching these videos. So as a feeling and as a psychological phenomenon, it's it's kind of different to this kind of industry of YouTube videos. But I think with anything, you know, you're going to get the, the darker sides of things. 
so some people you know there's some some strange videos out there that people are watching but in in a way this kind of disconnection from real life allows people to tap into this feeling when they want to on demand rather than waiting for it to happen naturalistically so actually people are being able to use these videos for their own benefit in terms of you know relief from insomnia so if you actually look at the comments on a lot of these videos you'll, you'll get people saying oh you know thank you so much you've really helped me you've helped me to sleep or you've helped me re relieve anxiety so there are positive sides to this kind of internet subculture I know I mean and I think it's great that there's people who have been experiencing this like my friend Tom who was feeling a little embarrassed and alone who now realized that yes. it's a normal part of being human and and it shows you you know points off just how incredible we as humans and you know are and how much undiscovered there is about our psyches and the way we operate so I think that's that's a very positive side to it and Julia, finally, one of the points that Mary makes in her piece is that various big corporations are now jumping on the ASMR bandwagon. I think we can hear a clip now from the Super Bowl, which was earlier this year. Let's all experience something together. This place, so pure, you can feel it. What do you make of that? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting to think about the way that advertisers are using it. I mean, in, on one hand, you know, you might think that they're just kind of jumping on the bandwagon of ASMR as this this trending thing that's happening. And then on the other side, you might think, well, actually, well, are they trying to um, induce ASMR in their viewers in, in an attempt to make them kind of buy products more? And I don't know which one it is, maybe perhaps both. But I think advertising campaigns that are quite successful that use ASMR are ones where ASMR kind of fits with the brand message as well. So there's definitely a way of integrating ASMR and advertising and other things like rap music and film. And it's actually, you see it in so many different industries now. Um, whereas, you know, before 2010, we didn't even have a word for this feeling. So it's, it's come quite far. Julia, Mary, thank you. And if anyone's been experiencing ASMR during this podcast, please do let us know. <laughs> and that's it for this week. As ever, if you pick up this week's issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as Nick Timothy's diary, where he compares Boris Johnson and Theresa May's campaigning techniques, Rachel Johnson on the joys of cooking with quince, and I'm in there too, writing about the truth about food photography. Plus, you can get a discounted subscription to The Spectator at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, as well as a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us next week. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number, the new podcast from ICAEW. Here presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses really have an age problem? Simply search for More Than a Number in your podcast app to download now.